Psalm 149, we're reading all these nine verses. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their Maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. Let them praise His name with the dance. Let them sing praises to Him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. And a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all His saints. Praise the Lord. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to You again that we have this opportunity to come before You and to study the truth of Your Word. And as we come to this this passage, this uh, psalm this morning, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to uh, hear the Word, the truth that is here, how it may apply to us, and how it truly should stir our hearts to give praise to Your holy name. And so we pray, Father, that as Your Word goes forth in the power of the Spirit, it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for Your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the fourth doxology of praise that closes out the Psalter. And as we've seen so far, each of these final five psalms kind of highlights a particular reason that God is to be praised and that He is to receive all the glory and the honor. He alone is our sure and certain hope in this life and in the eternal life to come. And the Lord truly cares for us through both His general and His special providences. And as the one true living God, the Lord is the creator of heaven and earth and all that they contain, including we ourselves. God is truly to be praised. But in Psalm 149, we come to perhaps what is really the the greatest reason to shout hallelujah and praise the Lord. Because He is the gracious Savior of undeserving sinners, even us. And yet, as we'll see in this psalm, it not only looks back and praises the Lord for salvation that has already been secured, but it also looks forward to a glory and honor that is still yet to come. One that the psalmist and his contemporaries only anticipated, and one that even we ourselves still await. And that is the glory of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and power as the righteous judge of all the earth. 
at that time, salvation and redemption of all creation shall be perfected as the enemies of Christ are once and for all subdued and judged. And our great Savior and Judge will be praised by all for all eternity. Well, the psalm begins, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise in the assembly of saints. And we again, we've noted before the feature of these final doxological uh, psalms is that they begin and end with hallelujah, right? with praise the Lord. But in this psalm, we're also urged to hallelujah, but also sing to the Lord a new song. Well, this then begs the question, what is this new song? Now, we may be tempted to think that this is the Lord's command to compose an entirely new song, right? a, a, a fresh um, and new composition by which we're to give praise to our God. But as we've already sung this morning in Psalm 96, we see that this isn't the first time the Psalms speak of a new song. Now, as we begin to study the use of the phrase new song throughout the Scriptures, we realize that it's actually very much the same song. That is the same theme that's sung over and over again. You see, the new song is actually an old song that gives praise to God for salvation. And it's new, not in the sense of of um, being a, a totally new composition, but it's new in the sense of freshness as it unfolds God's salvation more fully as it's experienced anew from one generation to the next. And so, for example, in Psalm 33 and Psalm 40, the new song rejoices in personal salvation that the Lord has secured for the psalmist. In Psalm 144, and here in Psalm 149, the the new song rejoices in the Lord, saving all His people and, and bringing them together. And in Psalm 96 and Psalm 98, the new song is sung by all creation for the Lord's great work of salvation and redemption. That's enjoyed, obviously, now, but then also anticipated more fully in the future. And so the new, though the new song is an old song, it's actually forever new because it never loses its freshness. Because the Lord is continuously saving and delivering and redeeming a people to Himself. But as the old song of salvation is sung as new, over time a fuller revelation is given as to the glory of the salvation that's enjoyed. And so, for example, we have the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42, calling people of every nation to sing the new song to the Lord. And they're to sing in response to the coming of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. The one who will bring the light of the Lord's salvation to all nations. And of course, this we know was fulfilled in the coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. As even the old man Simeon proclaimed when, uh, when he saw the baby Jesus uh, being brought by his parents into the temple in order to be dedicated. In Luke 2, Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so the new song we see then is a gospel song. A song revealing the glory of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, this then is that we too can sing this old song as, as a new song, as a song of our salvation, accomplished through the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can sing this new song with great joy and gladness in our worship even today. But there's more. For the new song continues to be renewed and refreshed, Not only as the gospel reaches new people and and transforms many hearts and lives, but it still has more to reveal. For the new song is the song that is sung in the glorious presence of the Lord in all eternity. It's sung by the four living creatures and the 24 elders who bow down before the Lamb, singing of the salvation that He accomplished in Revelation 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the new song. And then in Revelation 14.3, the new song is sung by the redeemed as they give eternal praise and glory to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they enjoy the fullness of His salvation, even perfection and holiness. And so the new song is an old song. An old song built upon the Lord's promises, now fulfilled in Christ Jesus and His work on the cross, but also still pointing us toward the worship of our Lord God and Savior and King and the blessed glory of eternal life. The new song is the everlasting song of the Lord's salvation that we can sing now and forever because of what Jesus has done for us. And so with the new song, in our hearts and on our lips, we sing and give praise to the Lord our Savior. And in verses 1-4, to we see several key words and phrases that really highlight the abounding greatness of our Savior and His special relationship that He has secured with those whom He saves. First, those whom the Lord saves are referred to as the assembly of saints. Now, an assembly is is just a group of people gathered together, and often for a common purpose or goal. And throughout the Old Testament, the assembly referred to the people of Israel gathered together, the covenant people of God. That they would assemble before the tabernacle and then later the temple in order to worship the Lord. Now we don't often think of saints as being an Old Testament word, but here it is. 
Referring to God's people Israel. And, and certainly not just here, but it's used actually throughout the Old Testament. Saints are holy ones, or godly ones, who've been set apart to God as His own special people. And after delivering the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, the Lord gathered them together, and He declared in Leviticus 19, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And so God calls His people to assemble together. He calls them to come out from the world. To be His own special people. To be holy even as He is holy. Beloved of God, the Lord does the same even today. And He calls His people out from the world to gather together to worship Him and to strive after His holiness. It's one of the reasons that we're here today on the Lord's Day. Because we've been called out from the world to come gather together in the presence of of our God and Savior, in the midst of the holy assembly of God. This is the very meaning of the word church. right? The Greek word ekklesia is, is the called out ones. God's called out people, an assembly of, the, of saints, except we're now called out in the fullness of the gospel that's been revealed through Jesus Christ. In Him and by His Spirit, He calls us to Himself, and He works in us to make us holy even as He Himself is holy. Beloved, we are, even this body here, we are the assembly of saints, the beloved people of God. Well, another key word we see is in the first part of verse 2, let Israel rejoice in their Maker. See, God, the Savior, is also the Maker or Creator. Now, this, of course, was the primary theme of, of Psalm 147 that we considered uh, last week, or Psalm 148, sorry, that we considered last week. Right, where all creation, including mankind, was urged to praise God because He made them. Indeed, we should praise the Lord our Creator. But you see, in this psalm, we're not finding here a general call to all creation, as we did in Psalm 148. We're not even finding a, a general call to all people to praise the Lord. No, this is a call for the people of God. To the ones whom He saved, and it's a call for them to praise Him. And so the making or creating refers not to their being created as as creatures but they're being created as a nation as a holy people unto God and this is what Moses declared in Deuteronomy 7 for you are a holy people to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other peoples for you were the least of all peoples but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here you see that God's election of Israel then is, is described as His graciously forming them into a great nation. 
and to his own covenant people upon whom he would bestow great blessing, especially the blessing of his salvation. And friends, this the Lord continues to do even today through the proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of the church. Except now, it's not just the people of one nation that God is calling to Himself, but those gathered in are being coming from, from all nations, both Jew and Gentile. The Apostle Paul points to this very thing when he says in, in Ephesians 2, verse 15, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace that He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. And then verse 19, Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We rejoice and praise the Lord because He is our Maker. He is the builder of His church and the Maker of His church, calling us from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be one in Him. But these words of the Apostle Paul lead us to another a truth revealed here about the Lord our Savior and, and those whom He saves. In the second part of verse 2, let the, citizens, the, excuse me, let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. Now, there's a couple things to note here. First, the Savior is a king, right? He is the supreme leader of His people. And because He is king, well, then His people, His subjects, owe Him due reverence and obedience. And indeed, they're to rejoice in the goodness of their king who watches over them and guards them and protects them. He is their king, and yet... He isn't so detached from them. He's not up in His palace hiding out from them. He's not ruling over them from a distance. No, He's a Father to them. Dwelling among them. Caring for them, providing for them, and loving them. Living with them. See, they're not only citizens of His kingdom... They're also His beloved children. And this is the saving relationship that the Lord continues to have with us through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. See, not only are we citizens of Zion, the holy city, the church, even as we've been singing this month from Psalm 87 and being reminded of each week, but through Jesus Christ, we are beloved children of God Most High, adopted into His family by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we might then be joint heirs with Christ in glory. And so for this... We ought then to praise the Lord. 
And then in verse 4, we see really the culmination of all this as the Lord our Savior takes pleasure in His people and He will beautify the humble with salvation. Well, as we've clearly seen here, that the Lord delights in His people, even us. He delights to gather us together. He delights to set us apart and to call us His own special people. He rejoices to make us a new creation and and build us into a great people, into a holy church. And He's most pleased to call us His beloved sons and daughters. Even taking such delight in us that He would actually send His only begotten Son, Jesus, to become like us. To be tempted and tried in all ways that we are yet without sin. All so that He might then be for us a most perfect Savior. And accomplish the forgiveness of our sins. And it's that salvation which Christ secured, which He continues to beautify and adorn us with, so that He might then present us, as uh, Jude says, uh, faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy on the last great day. As God works in us and He saves us and He saves us every day, renewing for us His grace and His mercy upon us, calling us together, drawing in more and more people into His glorious church, into His glorious body, loving us, caring for us, providing for us, so that we might then be perfected and presented to Him as a beautiful bride and perfect without stain on that last great day. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. Friends, are your hearts, are they yet greatly stirred considering these things? Well, they ought to be. Even with exuberant joy and gladness, as we see even here laid out, that really the nature of our praise is is described in this psalm as well. But our praise is to be sung. A a joyful sound coming forth from our hearts and lips in praise to God. And let us sing the new song of the Lord's salvation with true and sincere hearts. As those that have been redeemed by His grace. Brought from death to new and everlasting life. The exuberance of the praise is expressed further even verse 3. Let them praise His name with the dance. Let them sing praises to Him with the timbrel and harp. Now this recalls the joy and the gladness of of the Israelites after the exodus from Egypt. And after the the great miracle of the parting of the Red Sea when they were able to cross on dry land. And yet then the Lord brought those that sea and the the waters of that sea come crashing down on, on Pharaoh and his army. Exodus 15, we read, Miriam, the sister of Moses, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. So excited and and, uh, stirred with joy and gladness. They they dance and they sing and they celebrate this great glorious salvation that God has secured for them. 
friends, thinking on salvation, the salvation that Christ has secured for us, which is an even greater salvation, what certainly should lead our hearts to burst with joy and gladness. We see this also in verses 5 and 6. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. A joyful, glorious, high praises to the Lord being lifted up from their lips. But note also here, let them sing aloud on their beds. Now this seems a little curious. But it really points to kind of the extent the very extent to which the people of God are moved to praise God for salvation. You see, earlier in the psalm, they do it publicly in the assembly of the saints. But here, they also do it privately. In the quiet hours of night as they lay on their beds, thinking and uh, contemplating how the Lord has blessed them throughout that day and sustained them. And looking forward to the new uh, restoration of God's grace in the day to come. Even as they lie on their beds, they're praising and rejoicing Him. But you see, the bed could also refer to times of misery and grief. And so then the picture becomes, well, not only in health, but even in sickness. We're to praise the Lord with great joy. Not only just in life, But oh, how sweet the victory of death that we have in Jesus Christ. That we can rejoice and praise the Lord even at the moment of death. Because we know that the sting of death has been removed by our glorious and gracious Savior. And so it's the the great extent of our praise And we burst forth in this highest praise. The highest praise above all else that we do. Giving all glory, honor, and praise to the name of the Lord. What a tremendous challenge for us. Again, even as we enjoy now in Christ an even greater salvation. Because we enjoy this salvation and deliverance from eternal condemnation in the flames of hell. And so how much more than we ought to now give praise joyfully, exuberantly, and extensively to our God. Hallelujah to Christ our Savior. And it's here at the height of exalted praise that the psalmist suddenly shifts gears. In verse 6, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Wait, what? And it gets even sharper. Verse 7 and 9. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. And so from, from exuberant, high, and exalted praise for salvation, now to a great sword that is used to bring about vengeance, destruction, and judgment. What's going on here with these 
imprecatory verses and, and how do they fit into the rest of the psalm if they even fit at all? Well, we can certainly be assured that they do fit. Even though the sound of vengeance and, and judgment seem to, to contradict and, and really grade against the joy and gladness of salvation. And so what's the connection? Well, for this we have to go back to the new song. That glorious old song of salvation sung anew in each generation as God saves His people. You see, if you read through the context of of those passages and those psalms in particular that mention the new song, yes, you'll see the joy of salvation being exalted and as as that salvation has been secured. But you'll also see that the song looks forward. Not just to the future generations who will be saved in and through Christ, even, even our own generation. But it looks forward to the final consummation of redemption that's ushered in at the end of the age. When Jesus returns in power and glory as the righteous judge of all the earth. This is how the new song of Psalm 96 uh, ends. For He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. And Psalm 98, another new song is is similar. It says, For He is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. And so the new song is a song of the administration of God's just judgment as much as it is a song of salvation and mercy. For the people of God. Indeed, this is why we find the new song mentioned once again in the book of Revelation. Right? Sung at the culmination of Christ's return and the ushering in of His glorious eternal kingdom. Again, in Revelation 5, it's sung in response to the redemption of God's people through the shed blood of the Lamb who had given Himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice for sins. And then in Revelation 14, it's sung again by the redeemed of the Lord as they exult in the glory of Christ's eternal kingdom. A time when the enemies of the earth have been defeated and judged. And the fullness and the perfection of salvation has now been ushered in. The new song is a song of God's mercy upon His people as He saves and delivers them. And it's also a song of God's just judgment on the wicked for their continued rebellion against Him. And so here's the connection within the the new song between God's mercy and God's judgment. You see, when God saves His people, He saves them from something. Right? We're saved to God and He draws us to Himself, but what are we saved from? For the Old Testament saints... They were saved from bondage and slavery in Egypt. They were repeatedly saved from oppressive enemies who sought to destroy them and who sought to enslave them. And they were saved from having been exiled in Babylon for 70 years and God brought them back. He saved them from real flesh and blood enemies and He often used His people Israel as the very instrument to carry out His just judgment on these rebellious and wicked nations. 
And so the, the two-edged sword for Israel then was a literal sword. Right? That wrought great destruction as it cut from both sides. Because God called the Old Testament saints to engage in holy wars. To bring judgment against wickedness. And again, we see this most especially even as we read this morning in, in Joshua 11 during the conquest of the promised land. And again, what's, we're reminded, that what's interesting there is that God had appointed this, this judgment upon these wicked nations long ago. Hundreds of years before, God told Abraham that when the time of God's patience toward the wickedness of the Amorites and the Canaanites would come to an end, see at that time, during Abraham's time, their wickedness was not quite full. And God was patient with them and long-suffering toward them, giving them opportunity to turn away from their wickedness, to turn away from their sins, but they refused and they continued to harden their hearts, being turned over even to a depraved mind. And their corruption grew and grew and grew. But the Lord told Abraham that a time would come when it would be filled and God's patience would come to an end. And it would be His people, Abraham's descendants, Israel, it will be used to bring judgment upon those nations for their idolatry and for their immorality, which really, uh, in the height of that immorality and that wickedness, uh, is described in the Scriptures as that most terrible thing when they're sacrificing their own children in the fire to their false idol gods. Destroying the precious gift that God had given to them in their children. And so the Lord used Israel to execute vengeance on the nations and and punishments on the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the written judgment. Even this judgment that was written and given to Abraham hundreds of years before. It had been declared in God's holy counsel. But this is how those nations would be judged. But now... In the New Testament age, God's people, the church, wield a much different two-edged sword. Even one that we see in Hebrews 4, verse 12, pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the sword of the gospel and the word of God. The mission that God has given to the church isn't one of violence, judgment, and, and weapons of war. But it's the mission of subduing nations through the proclamation of the gospel. Which is why Christ calls His church to go forth into the world to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them the commandments that He has given to His people. And the holy war we engage in isn't against flesh and blood. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, but it's against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Indeed, really, the only flesh and blood uh, we're called to war against is actually our own. Right, as we daily battle against the remnant of this sin nature in us, putting to death the old man of sin and putting on Christ. Putting to death the lust of the flesh and the deeds of the flesh. 
and putting on truth and righteousness, holiness, gentleness, goodness, kindness, love. But we don't take up the sword against others seeking vengeance. And we don't take up the sword even to seek the expansion of God's kingdom as as some in the past have foolishly done. No, the church is called to spiritual battle. And spiritual battle calls for spiritual weapons. And the greatest of which is the Word of God. And as we faithfully proclaim the Gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through it, enemies will be subdued. Nations will fall. And sinners will be saved. The church, faithfully proclaiming the Gospel, is God's instrument of saving a people for Himself, gathering them from every tribe, nation, and tongue, bringing them into one glorious assembly of saints, where we all will sing the new song in praise to our God and Savior as children of God. But there's a further honor here given to the people of God, as we're told in the end of verse 9. This honor have all His saints. Now, what, what's that honor that he's speaking of? Well, it's the honor of judging the nations that's described in verses 7 to 9. Now, you may wonder, well, wait, well, didn't we just say that the church doesn't carry the sword of judgment and, and doesn't engage in battles against flesh and blood? So what's going on here? What's well, the honor promised to the saints of the Lord, even us, that we will be with Christ our Lord on that last great day. And we will have the honor to sit in judgment over the nations. 1 Corinthians 6.2, Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then he goes on to say that we will even sit in judgment over the angels. And so the honor and administration of justice foretold in this psalm, yes, even that which is looked forward to in the new song, comes to fruition on the last great day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Brothers and sisters, the new song that is given here in in Psalm 149 is truly a song for us to sing today. To praise God and to sing hallelujah to the Lord our Savior. For He has saved us from our sins and He has delivered us from condemnation and wrath. And He will bring our redemption to completion on that last great day when Jesus returns in power and glory. And then at that time, we shall be honored to sit with Him in judgment over all the earth where we will reign with Him over His glorious eternal kingdom. Hallelujah! Sing to the Lord this new song. Sing to the Lord both now and forever to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You that You have revealed to us in Your Word this new song that we can sing again and again and again because it speaks to us. It tells us of the salvation that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. 
and it holds out for us the sure and certain hope of your glorious return and the honor that will be bestowed upon your people to be able to sit in judgment over the nations, to sit in judgment over those who have persecuted us and harassed us and thrown us in prison and mocked us and and beaten us and even killed us. But we do it not in seeking a, a vengeance, but as part of just the administration of your just judgment upon sin and wickedness. Knowing full well that without your outpouring of grace and mercy upon us, that we would also then be judged in the very same way. And Father, we praise You and thank You that You have given to us and entrusted to us the glorious sword of Your Word, of the Gospel. And that this is the chief weapon that You have given to us as we go out into this world seeking to conquer the nations. Not with the shedding of blood, but by presenting the Gospel. Presenting the Gospel and telling of the One whose blood was shed for undeserving sinners. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father, that You would truly challenge us and give us great boldness as we seek to carry out this mission. To go forth even into our own community with the Gospel. To be bold. To uh, be able to share this Gospel truth. So that nations would fall. And that men would bow before You. Humbly embracing the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. Father, we pray that You would bless us in this way. Bless us in this ministry. Bless the the ministry of our congregation in these things. And that we would do it always with Your glory, Your praise, and Your honor at the forefront. May we truly sing hallelujah and praise the Lord. He is our Savior and our Redeemer. And He is the righteous judge of all the earth. Father, we pray that You would impress these truths upon each of our own hearts, drawing us, each of us, closer to Yourself. All to the glorious praise of Your holy name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.